Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 1 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. This podcast aims to bring you news and discussions about the cool things happening in Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we update our skills episode from Season 2. Let's jump into the news then, the 27th of February 2020. Um, the first thing I wanted to mention was that I've seen this website from abc.net, the news organisation from Australia, and it talks about the wildfires. And this website is a little bit similar to the Esri story map. Have you ever come across those? Oh, yeah. Uh, where you kind of scroll along down and it sort of moves you around and it annotates the map with whatever the topic is. Yeah. Anyway, I find this site really brilliant. It's using Sentinel 2 data and some geostationary data and it's moving around as you scroll down the page. It's brilliant. It's re- really smooth, isn't it? Yeah. And this obviously has been processed image and I think they're getting a lot of the data from the Sentinel hub. But in this case, I've never quite seen it so slickly put together. Yeah. I'm impressed at the technical skill that's gone into this, but also I'm completely overwhelmed by the information that they're giving me. It's really powerful, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the things that you've mentioned, I don't know how many times on the podcast, uh, is like visualization is a, a key thing to get right. And this is so engaging. They, they've done a really top job. It's just the way it steps me through the narrative and the story. And it's not heavy on the text. It moves around. It's really conveying that story. But I really love the, the geostationary part where the, you can sort of see the uh, smoke plumes move. I think it's really brilliant. And it's one of these things that I'm going to bookmark and show people in the future saying, this is what I mean by Earth observation. This is what this is kind of what you can do with it. It's so slick. This is a really small detail. But the background satellite image, is, it's not a direct north-south scroll. If you, as you scroll down it, yeah. it's going at a slight diagonal. It's so nice. It's, it's as if you're on the satellite. It's so cool. Yeah, it is nice, isn't it? I, I'm a real big fan of it as well because it's something that's, in, that's been put into the public domain for the public. And obviously they've got the, the pick of the imagery. But that's the thing, isn't it? We're not having to say, oh, you know, we're having to wait for a cloud-free image or anything. All that hard work is going on behind the scenes, getting the right data and all this kind of stuff. The story is so compelling. If you can tell a story, then you bring to life whatever it is you're showing. Hats off to them. Well done, ABC. That is a really good job. Yeah, it is great, isn't it? And I wonder if an Earth observation or a geospatial person has actually had their fingers on this or not. Yeah. I, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if the actual answer is not. I just want to highlight in people's consciousness um, a project that I came across recently, and it's being worked on by a researcher at the University of Oxford. But this is quite a nifty thing, and it might... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest now that it should tie in with the ML Hub stuff that we were talking about in the last um, special episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is a project that's on something called Zooniverse, which is a citizen science platform. And it's a way of getting people to interact with data and create effectively training data sets and other types of data sets. And this project is called Power to the People. And what they're trying to do is find new ways in which they can get electricity access to hard to reach areas uh, across the world. And what they're trying to do 
is try and alleviate poverty by introducing electricity and, and trying to improve quality of life that way. And what they want people to do on the Zooniverse platform is basically look at clips of satellite imagery and start to identify buildings in sub-Saharan Africa. And then by doing that, you generate a training data set, which will then train some of the algorithms that they're using behind the scenes to then try and pull those buildings out of the imagery in a sort of automated way. So this is a really interesting project. I, I just find this whole notion of renewables and sort of off-grid electricity access and things like that and sustainable energy really, really interesting. We'll put a link in the show notes. Go there, check it out and interact with the project if you can and if you want to. One thing I would say to the researchers is if there's any way that you can make the information that you gather through this project available to the ML Hub, that would massively help, I think, in terms of trying to get some of these projects up and running. In fact, Radiant Earth Foundation might even be interested in, in this project. Mm, interesting. I think this time, Blogger the Vote goes to SAR 101. So SAR 101 um, is another um, post from the Downlink blog series. And this is part one of a two-part series on SAR data. And it's tied into the SpaceNet 6. I need to say SpaceNet 4 then. The SpaceNet 6 competition, where they're um, running a competition on deep learning on um, SAR data. The case to use SAR data is so apparent to me. The value of it is enormous. This is a really good blog for you know talking about shadowing and foreshortening and, and speckle and all and all this kind of stuff. Where was this when I was doing my PhD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, I found this blog on SAR, and over to you to. <laughs> Um, a little bit of funding news now. Uh, this is a lecturer, uh, Professor Phil Lewis down in UCL, has won the Newton Prize 2019. And in that, he's using remote sensing to look at crop monitoring and food security. It says in the, the press release that came out that this project is among the first to make use of new capabilities from high temporal frequency imaging from space, enabled by the EU European Space Agency, Copernicus Sentinel Satellites, and supplemented by US and Chinese assets. But this is really good news for a team down in London. And it looks as if what they're going to be doing is using Earth observation data and then data assimilation methods as well to help Ghana build a, a better, more robust capacity for food crop monitoring, particularly looking at the maize crop. And just to let you know that if you want a slice of that Newton Prize in 2020, then applications will open on Tuesday, the 10th of March. Okay, cool. I've sort of got a quick dump of things that have flown past me in the news. But yeah, just a just sort of summary of, of things that are also going on that I've seen include Landsat 9. Its launch has been delayed slightly until 2021, but we should have images hopefully if launch is successful by summer of 2021. Other things that I've seen, Central Hub contest um, has been completed and the winners have been announced and prizes have been awarded, so go and check that out. I wanted to mention Descartes Labs did this uh, template matching system a couple of years back. I think it was called something like search.descartelabs. I'm trying to remember. And basically, you could click on an image 
a, like a chip and it would go and find similar chips. Oh, yeah, yeah. Things. Yeah, yeah. I remember when um, wind turbines was their big thing, wasn't it? You could click on a wind turbine and find all the wind turbines uh, in the US yeah. or something. Yeah. I think that page is still live. I'll have to have a look. The techniques and technology behind that and how it was all spun up in the Google Cloud has been uh, released. And also today I saw that Patrick Gray, and if you're not following Patrick Gray on Twitter and on GitHub, you need to because he's <laughs> checking out some amazing Python stuff. He's got some code up there about deep learning for oyster detection, and there's loads of code behind that. And finally, in this sort of quick news blast, <laughs> is that I saw that South Korea is launching a series of geostationary environmental monitoring spectrometer instruments. Ooh, um, geostationary. Okay. Yeah, cool. yeah I'm to again. <laughs> <laughs> and that went up on the 18th of February. And this is all on measuring pollution and stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool. I am going to look out for that. This is a kind of complementer, I think, to Sentinel-4 from ESA. Um, I think yeah, yeah. in this decade, you and me will be saying Sentinel-4 a lot. We're going to get hourly pollution updates across Europe. Yeah. And yeah. you can imagine that being reported on the breakfast news every day. The vision of the... Copernicus program leaders when they were putting this together has been absolutely outstanding. But you know, when I talk to non-EO people who are using this data now, who've been convinced of its value, the biggest thing that they conceive to be of the value is that there's a published and transparent path for the next 10 years. This isn't just going to disappear. So my final piece of news is I'm quite excited by the fact that one of the uh, sort of more exciting small startup companies in the UK is now getting involved in something called Project Leo. So I live just outside Oxford and Project Leo is a big thing here at the moment. So it's called uh, Leo stands for Local Energy Oxfordshire. And this is effectively a huge county-wide project that's trying to look at a whole raft of different what they're calling smart grid technologies so it's things like home batteries and vehicle to grid type technologies and using renewables in a certain way huge great big batteries for like industrial storage and rapid charging of buses and all of these things it's basically they're using oxford and oxfordshire as a bit of a test bed and what's really cool is energio who's the sort of geospatial earth observation company in the uk they have been taken on by the people who drive project leo primarily oxfordshire county council so what they're going to be doing is using high resolution satellite and aerial imagery and various other types of digital mapping and their machine learning techniques to look at all sorts of different things. My two big passions are basically remote sensing and the energy transition. And so to have a company that's involved in that from the Earth observation side of things is really cool. Yeah, a really good find, that is. Um, they seem to be positioning themselves in a really good place. That's a lot of news, isn't it, this time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> More than I was expecting. <laughs> but there's a lot going on, isn't there? And that's it for the news. Let's revisit, what was it, season... Yeah, season two, episode three. We did a podcast together in the catapult. We actually sat next to each other. Oh, yeah, that was ages ago. We're still going. <laughs> That's the only one where, where the microphones are just perfect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we said as much as I was remembering as to have said. Maybe that's your fault for the edit. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did this really long introduction, like a three-minute introduction. 
We should bring back the notion of the Alistair Graham three-minute monologue. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I spent a few moments looking at job boards because where else better to start than seeing what employers are after. And as an aside, I'm not aware of too many different job boards in the UK, at least, other than looking at Indeed, LinkedIn. Um, Earthworks. Earthworks, yeah. But even then, that's a lot of academic stuff that's on there. If you know of any others, give us a shout. There's the um, GIS jobs. GIS jobs, yeah. But but again, that's quite gis focused. Yes, that's true. Which is fine. Um, and, you know, remote sensing and earth observation do have a GIS component and, and vice versa. But anyway, when I went looking, and again, it's really anecdotal and a snapshot just of, of today and to how I remember it being. But I'm seeing less of this sort of chocolate box type approach of listing a whole stack of technologies and softwares and bespoke skills and instead asking for, and these are the, these are the four most common things I saw, were A, a postgraduate qualification, right. processing skills, previous experience, and analysis of data. And Python and R were mentioned, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit, but most previously I'd have seen, we're expecting people to have experience with these commercial pieces of software and these open pieces of software. It seems to me that companies are saying, we're just after your ability to be able to do these things now. And maybe it's admission that the software is similar and the knowledge is more important to be able to do the processing, for example. So processing skills seems to be quite highly in demand. I think it would be really interesting to talk to a recruiter because they, they have their fingers in the pie, as it were, to, to see where the market's going and, and the skills that are needed. If a job advert asks for a specific skill, let's say ArcGIS, and you've never used ArcGIS, yeah. and you apply for that job, and you'll, you get to interview, and they say, what do you know about ArcGIS? And you say, oh, well, you, you know, I know a little bit. And they well, really we wanted two years' experience of using ArcGIS, so sorry. I wonder if now there's the recognition that we're not so worried that you're really good at one software, you can pick it up. Um, I wanted to mention some of the things that we said on the previous podcast we had no mention of things like docker if i was setting up a company i think that would be high on the list of things that i would be looking for from people because then it's not something that i have particularly strong skills in no mention of git either but then maybe i'm sort of looking at more technical roles there personally i would say that one of the things that doesn't seem to get mentioned in terms of earth observation that much it's certainly in the job adverts that I've seen is this whole notion of DevOps, so Docker, but also everything that goes around it. So yeah. things like Ansible and, and stuff like that. And I wonder whether that's because it's not really getting used, although I bet if you look at some of these companies that are doing you know, the big cloud infrastructure type projects, they must be using that sort of thing for their developers. Yeah, I don't see it as much as I thought I would. And yet, to me, they, they're sort of key really underpinning the growth of a company being able to have an environment that you can set up and get someone working in really quickly on your code base and that whole devops process i think that's something that would be really important to a a growing company 
The other thing I suppose that I'm a little bit surprised at as well is that there's not so much on vis- visualizations. Yeah. Something I was expecting maybe a little bit more of, but maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. We have a bias here for sure. And I'm reluctant to say this, but I wonder if we're, we're constantly looking for the new things that sometimes we're seeing all these things that sort of fly by us and we're not really getting an appreciation of if they're getting traction in companies. And Docker would be a good example of that. So I don't really know how well that's being used. On our previous podcast, we were both quite convinced that having processing skills and operating in the cloud seemed to be an essential skill for an Earth observation person in 2018, I think we were recording then. Yeah, yeah. Today, I think that's less important. The way the cloud is going is that more companies have built systems or push their operations into the cloud or is accessible via a web front end that as users of the data or even programmers of the data and there's more apis now but i I kind of think that skill isn't as valuable to what we're doing two years ago i was thinking that cloud was going to be the way forward for me day to day i would be using it on most of my projects and that that's where the majority of my company outlay would go and that really i would be a cloud centric entity and you're right that hasn't really come to fruition in part because i can get either access to other people's cloud yeah or like you say more likely i get access to the results of something that's happened on someone else's cloud what for me would be really interesting is an understanding of what the uptake has been like in terms of actual use of things like the DIAS, DIAS systems, because that, again, is a fairly intuitive route into using data on the cloud. But also systems like Cloudio as well, where you've got that sort of marketplace of different services. I'd be really interested to get an update on how that's being used, because I think now, two years on from those episodes, when we were discussing these types of things, I can see that those marketplaces and those ease of access environments where you don't have to actually worry about what the cloud is doing, that's taking care yeah. in the background, that's of much more interest, really, than um, me spinning up my own EC2 or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it as well. In 2018, when we spoke, I thought we're all going to be spinning up services by now and pulling in data and having to sort of get it into our system and, and then do something to it. But I think it's it's a step on from that. That's almost all done for me. Yeah. And I welcome that. I think the cloud is incredibly important, but I think starting from scratch in the cloud and becoming a sort of cloud engineer, um, I don't yeah. think those skills are as important as I was expecting them to be. So here's a question for you. So back when I started up Jogger, I would have classed myself as a as a remote sensing scientist. That would have been what I did. I took an image, I had it downloaded on my machine, and I was involved in using point-and-click graphical user interface software to generate products, usually from one or you know a small number of images, and output those to some GIS layer. And although that's still something I do, I would say over the six and a bit years that I've been working for myself, the majority of my work has swiveled slightly to be more along the lines of writing bits of code that get me the answers I need. So rather than using the graphical interface so much, Mm. I now am able to process relatively large amounts of data in order to get the information that I want. And quite often that 
doesn't really, apart from maybe a quick visual check, that doesn't really go into the GIS at all. So I don't really know what to call myself anymore. Um, so I put together workflows, I put together scripts. I wouldn't say that I was an Earth observation programmer, but I don't know if I'm still a remote sensing scientist. So I understand that I have skills that enable the whole process to be brought together. What am I? <laughs> I think Earth data scientist would be a reasonable approximation for what you just described. Okay, yeah. But also, both of us suffer from the bias of whatever the client that we are working for at the time wants. You are potentially also the jack of all trades. That's true. I think it's great because you're never just going to be, and I know you weren't ever, but you're never just going to be the GIS technician. I look at these job adverts and I, I do think they change, but I don't know how, how frequently they change. It'd be really nice to be able to have some place where you can sort of say, well, hey, I, I am more than just a, a Python coder or whatever. Mm. I'm more than just someone who does hydrological GIS. And then someone can then look at that and go, oh, okay, cool. So you've got more skills than just being the Sentinel-2 person or whatever. And I guess that there are places you can upload a CV, but it's also, I don't know, everything seems to be so rigid in, in how it's set out. And I just feel that if you had a conversation with somebody nine times out of 10, and this is what I found working for myself, is that when you have a conversation with someone, you, you usually hit upon something that you hadn't thought about at the beginning of the conversation, but suddenly that's the thing that is most important at the end of the conversation. And it should be like that for, for job hunting or for talent hunting. There is something missing in our sector, or I'm not seeing it. Every piece of information I get from a potential employer is it's really hard to hire and we've got loads of work and not enough people but I've never quite got to the fundamentals of where they're looking to hire from from a job hunter's perspective a good CV and a good cover letter take a lot of time and if you've gone to the effort of doing all that and you get no feedback that's quite demoralizing I think it's sort of a common common theme as we go across our podcast is Building your network is the fundamental, isn't it? But I wanted to go back onto skills and um, jump onto this sites.stackoverflow survey that was done and the, and the trends data. And have you looked at this yet? I have, yeah. Okay. Um, so you're not going to be uh, <laughs> you're not going to be like wowed or anything. But but I was earlier on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to recreate? Do you want to face it? <laughs> I was looking at this and I was actually teaching this week a Python course. I wanted to show the growth of questions asked on Stack Overflow for Python versus R, for example. And you can plot these two things. And R at the moment is, is sort of stable at about 2% of all the questions. Um, Python is just shy of, I think it's just above 13.5% of all questions. Yeah. Uh, so what, what's the difference there? About 11%. If you go back to the mid part of last decade, the difference was, what, 3%? So it's Python's really, really shot up in terms of growth and usage. So, And the other thing that I thought was interesting as well was if you put GIS in there. Yes, and you can put PostGIS in as well. So you can see that GIS has sort of dropped a bit and then stabilized, and PostGIS has sort of increased a bit. But there's another thing, isn't there? There's Google Trends. That's true. And I'm going to look at that now, live, having not looked at it. <laughs> but the trend was Q to overtake Arc. So ArcGIS software. Let's have a look. 
oh, exciting, what's it going to be? <laughs> um, so they're really comparable. Okay. But ARC is just above. You know, what you were saying earlier about since you started Jogger and you thought you'd be doing one thing and five years later or seven years later, whatever it's been, things have changed. Yeah. That's sort of indicative, I think, of how, how the industry has changed. And I think by definition, we both look at the technical side of things. So whether the softer skills have changed as much, I don't know. I think there does come a point where you just want to pick something that's stable and you can trust that it's going to be usable in four, five, six, seven, eight years. And that kind of leads me to how I sort of thought we would end up tying this all together. I'm glad you have an idea for that because I was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is like this focus on skills. I'd really like to understand the difference in skill requirements throughout the different age brackets as well. When we're talking about technology, in my head, I'm always thinking about either people working for themselves or for more junior positions. And it'd be really interesting to also, at some point, probably in another update in two years' time, think about the more senior roles and what they need to be doing. But do you think you suffer from, because I know I do, you, you suffer from seeing someone doing something and thinking, crikey, everyone's doing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I need to get on this. Yeah. Because Otherwise, my skills are redundant. And I think it took me a long time to come to terms with myself that I was never going to be a post-gist person. Because every, every single talk I saw was people showing the power of post-gist. And I was like, oh, I need to do that. And I just thought, actually, no, I don't need to do that. Yeah, really interesting. Because I think that I think a lot of people suffer from that. What's that term? Where oh, Imposter syndrome. Yes. Where you yeah. kind of feel, oh, you know, am I good enough for this? Guys, guys, you are. You are perfectly capable of doing the job that you've been hired to do. I believe in you. <laughs> and I also worry that people do things like Python or R because they feel the pressure to do it. Everybody, including us on this podcast, talks about programming skills. And programming skills are really useful. But they're not the be-all and end-all of everything. And I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was working with a bunch of people who had amazing FME skills. And yeah, most of them could program. But actually, in FME, you can build your workbench and, and fire it off, and it can do so much stuff. And yeah. being a, a power user in a piece of software, irrespective of what type of software it is, but being someone who knows the ins and outs and knows how to optimize it is so powerful. You, you've got, that is not something to shy away from shouting about. That, that is a really top skill, being able to know how to use a piece of software that businesses and other organizations need. I get asked all the time, you know, all sorts of different bits. Do you program within QJS? Common question I get asked. And I've written a part of a chapter on a book on that. And the honest answer is I don't really. I don't program within QJS. I do it all external. I, I think sometimes you think, right, I've got to do this. You know, I've got to... <laughs> got a program yeah. and I've learned to load a load of layers in. I think it's difficult to sort of work out what is going to be useful to you. I, lo I love this idea of developing skills by doing this three-day rule, which is on day one, find as much information about whatever the topic is that you're, that you're going to do. Get a good background. Day two, go hacky. Just get something working by the end of day two, whatever it yeah. is. By the end of day three, your aim is to get something that's working and then you're done, stop. So day one, deep research, day two, hack about, and day three, commercialize for want of a better word. And it's just like a short, a really short project. But be realistic, don't, 
don't try and rewrite JS software. I can say I love what you just said because that whole thing about research, go hacky, and then commercialize, that can be applied to so many different things. I was just thinking about soft skills and networking is one of these things that people always say is really important. I think we've said it multiple times on the podcast as well. And actually, you could do that. You can research what are the local networking opportunities and go hacky, where you can just go to as many of them as you feel you can get to, not necessarily interact that much. Then you can just sort of see what it's about. And then commercialize is you know which ones you want to go to, which ones are going to be most useful. So you go back there with your business cards and you've got a set of questions and what have you, and you're going to identify someone to talk to. Say, oh, I love that. That's a really good model that you've fallen upon there that can be applied to so many different things. Yeah, I just I just like this kind of three-day or three-component way of thinking things. Um, to try and sort of tie this all up, what is it like to have a career today in geospatial? And I think there's a lot of people that just love maps. All they wanted to do was make a map. I still think that there's a skill in doing that, and I still think there's a demand in doing that. You shouldn't have to feel the pressure of saying you must become a database person or a programmer or a geospatial cloud engineer. You don't have to go into machine learning. What? <laughs> Careers are bumpy, aren't they? I mean, I know. Yeah. I think it would be remiss of us not to finish by talking, when we're talking about skills and, and trying to get some semblance of what's going on in, in needed skills for the job market today is to say, if you really like what you're doing, that, that's okay. Yeah. In fact, if you really like what you're doing, you are in a very special place. Yeah, I mean, you're winning. Is, yeah. yeah, exactly. Really, when you think about it, everything is geospatial. I think people outside of geospatial certainly pigeonhole us all into a, a smaller group. I do sometimes feel concerned that the stepping stones aren't obvious. In other professions, I think that there are clearer career paths. And I'm sure someone will shoot me down for saying that, saying that, you know, it's quite obvious career paths in geospatial data and, you know, your careers are limitless. You know, people are sold on it, really love saying that. I think the days of a GIS technician are perhaps coming to an end. The communication of information and mapping is one of those things. Cartography is, is so undervalued. Like that first news item, when you get the visualisation right, you, you really get it right. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Map underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thank you for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. Oh, this feels different.
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.